you know, the last 12 to 18 months has really given everyone the opportunity just to reflect, to, to really work if they really want to be in this industry. Um, and it's closed a lot of restaurants who potentially weren't doing the right thing. They were just paying cash and all this sort of stuff. So um, they couldn't get any of the government incentives. So I think it's given us a chance just to refresh and reset. Today on Dirty Linen, we are chatting to one of Australia's premier chefs. Mark Namoyle is chef and co-owner of Luna's Food and Wine in Melbourne, St Kilda, within ear-splitting screen distance of the famous Luna Park. Mark has extensive experience in the industry. He was executive chef of the RACV City Club for a decade, and I've also encountered him as a competition judge. Just yesterday, Mark, you'll, you'll be glad to know I was speaking to a TAFE teacher who sang your praises as a mentor. Welcome to Dirty Linen. Hey, Danny, how are you? Fantastic, and thank you for that welcome. Yeah, it's so good to have you here. Um, I'm really keen to talk to you this week because we are talking about staffing in the hospitality industry, and I know you're going to have interesting things to say about that. But let's let's start by um, give us a little rundown on Luna, and then you can talk to us about staffing that, and let's let's get into it more generally as well. Sure, Danny. So uh, Luna is a great little project. Um, so when I left sort of working for bigger hotels, and running restaurants for people. I sort of wanted to work for myself and I thought it was that time of my career and the opportunity to come along um, with another partner at the Lunas here. Um, so I sort of popped into the restaurant and bought into it and all of this exciting stuff was happening. But then it was actually a month before COVID hit, Danny. So um, then COVID hit. So it was a really interesting time. Um, but we took a lot of positives out of it as well. So we sort of, we thought, look, okay, we're lucky that we don't really need to make money at the restaurant straight away. Um, so we used that time during COVID to, you know, renovate, to rebrand, to rebuild and, and to start working on our team because we knew that um, it was going to take a while. Um, and we thought it did, nobody really knew. Um, so we sort of traded through COVID, um, kept open and kept, training the staff, trying to give them a shift here and there, keep them engaged. And and now we sort of feel like we're coming, you know, out of the positive side of it. So it's, it's all fun. Yeah, well, that's really interesting because so many neighbourhood businesses relied on a community that they'd already built up pre-COVID to sort of sustain them through that long period of takeaway. But that's interesting that you had a new business, but you were still able to trade through. Yeah, well, the interesting part of us was that before we moved into Luna's, the, the restaurant actually had um, three owners within about 14 months. Um, and the, the restaurant is under an apartment building and, and it was sort of at the point where even the guys who lived upstairs in apartments wouldn't even come down for coffee because the service wasn't there and the quality wasn't there. And all these things are really starting behind the eight ball with a restaurant that had, had a bad name um, and also then with COVID as well. So... Um, so for us, we just basically um, looked at that time to get the confidence back of the of the locals. Um, we did a lot of things with the local community. Um, we were helping with food charity drops. We um, one thing I'm really big on, on sustainability in the kitchen, hay wasting food. So we realised that during um, COVID, everyone was getting dogs. So we started making dog biscuits with our leftover vegetables and stuff, which is great fun. Um, so now I've got about, you know, uh, 25, 30 puppies who come and visit me every day. And and that sort of built that sort of local community. We even had a puppy pub crawl on the weekend. So we had 20 dogs and owners come to Luna's and we made peanut butter and bacon cocktails for the dogs and, you know, the owners had fun. So we've done a lot of stuff like that to sort of, you know, build a real local hangout community feel and, and make it feel like a welcoming club sort of, you know, environment. 
That is so good. I'm going to come down with my dog one day. Um, but I, yeah, I did. There is some kind of stat about if you get the dogs to come, the owners will follow. Like, I think there's really something in that. And as you say, those lockdown puppies, they are everywhere. Oh, I know. They're great. We love them. <laughs> I love it. Um, and, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the the food waste as well because I saw some um, crazy stat on your CV that you diverted 145 tonnes of organics from landfill and reduced yep. waste pickup costs by 15% at the, at the um, RACV club. So, I mean, it's obviously been something you've been thinking about for a while. Look, it has. And, and I think um, when I first started doing a bit of research on it, um, we actually did a waste audit at the RACV club. So there's three big skip bins down in the loading bay. Um, and at the time, um, every sort of bit of food waste and, and commingled waste was going in there. So I hired a company um, essentially to do a food waste audit. Um, and what they did was by hand, they separated all of the, the food into, you know, cardboard to organics, what was getting, um, not getting recycled that should. And I found out that a place um, like the RACV, so just one hotel in Melbourne, quite a big place, was producing three to 400 kilos of organic waste a day. And it was massive. And, and that's everything from like, you know, off. Uh, leftover food from from the buffet, table scraps, offcuts of you know bits and pieces, um, food returned from from functions, all that sort of stuff. And I thought, wow. And then I did a bit of research, and it was probably a little bit before that it was trendy and was on a lot of companies, um, you know, uh, radar about sustainability. Um, so, and I found out I worked with a company um, called Orca at the time, um, and they had some they had a units which you can basically turn your waste into water on site. Um, so you're basically diverting that uh, food which going to landfill, which creates greenhouse gas. It also reduces road miles, you know, greenhouse emissions from cars and, and all that sort of stuff. Helps um, keep the streets a bit free of trucks and all that sort of gear. Um, yeah, and so I put a proposal together for my management team and at the time my, my GM, who was really supportive, she goes, oh, God, Mark, it's another one of your crazy ideas, but let's have a go at it. Um, and, and then we actually got some traction out of it and we worked with the council just to test the water to make sure that what was coming out of the machine was, you know, wasn't unhealthy for the environment um, and it became a great story and in the end we had basically we're almost a bit of a test site where you know we invite people to come in have a look what we're doing and, and I've even implemented a little mini version of it here at Lunas so because I think it's just great so um, I, I think it's Australia as a country is, is probably well behind the mark some, to some other countries in the world but we're getting there um, I'm even inviting some of our customers now to bring their organic waste if they're invited if, oh, sorry if they're keen in that sort of thing and, and drop it in our little uh, machine downstairs. Oh, that's amazing. So does it like juice the scraps? Like what does it do? Yeah. So what it is, it's, it essentially looks like a, a sort of a washing machine, with a, a top loading washing machine. And it's got a um, vertical bar across it with some paddles. And inside they put uh, some wood chips and nuts from like macadamia shells and all that sort of stuff. So basically nuts, shells and bark. And then what happens is you put all of your food waste into it. Um, and that turns and agitates and you spray a natural natural chemical in there which helps digest the food and essentially turns it all into water and it just goes down the drain. That is really radical. That's amazing. I know. It's just a great thing. It also makes me think of this um, something I saw at Global Table, this sort of food and ag tech conference a couple of years ago in Melbourne and it was um, it was like a, it was some sort of camera reader over that you sat over a bin in a kitchen and it assessed everything that went into the bin and then printed out a report so that you could see, oh, we're, we're 
you know, we're selling 100 kilos of chips, but we're putting 30 in the bin. And from that information, people are able to adjust portion sizes and, you know, or adjust dishes or garnishes, whatever it was. And it, they found that that, that was a, there was a really um, radical decrease in things that were going into the bin in the first place. Well, that's amazing. And I think there's a few parts where there's obviously the green thing as well. But at the end of the day, we all know that in a, in a restaurant and any food business, like food is money. Um, so it's good for the staff to, to realise that, you know, how much food we're, we're uh, wasting and what can we do with it? And that's where the doggy biggies come out of it. Um, and now, like, the staff are on. And the machine gives us some great data as well. So we know how much food that we've diverted from landfill and the staff really get behind it. And it's just a great story. And and, it does, and the good thing about it, it's cheap. So um, essentially the machine, um, you, you rent the machine, but uh, the guys come and service it for you. Um, and my goal is to um, reduce our two bins downstairs, our two really bins down to one. So we're going to save a bit of money on that. So that'll offset it. And I just think it's a, it's a great story. And, um, yeah, I think a lot more people should be trying involved in it. It's amazing. And did you say it's called Orca? Um, it's actually the company now, the machine was called Orca previously. Now there's an Australian company called Ugis. Um, and they're looking at, I think the technology comes from Canada, um, but they're looking to produce something similar in Australia. So, um, yeah, UGIS is the company's name. And, um, yeah, they're, they're just fantastic to work with. Um, it's really cheap to, to rent the unit. And, like I said, and you don't have to buy, you don't have to, they, they provide you with all the um, organic chemical that goes inside to it. And they come and service it once a week. So it's just easy. They come, they come and install it for you and all that sort of stuff. Um, sounds so good. So, Mark, everyone in hospitality is talking about staffing. It seems to be the main conversation. Mm. Um, how are things from your point of view and what do you see as some of the issues in the industry at the moment? Yeah, look, Danny, it's definitely a real thing. And, and I think from my point of view, look, I've been on quite a few industry bodies and a few industry forums, and this was even pre-COVID where there was a skill shortage in hospitality. So um, I think... Um, COVID has highlighted that, but it's already been there previously. So, and I knew when I was at the, you know, managing big teams like a place like the RACV Club, we had to do a lot to invest in just to get our good quality apprentice for the future. So, we were doing things there like running work experience programs where we would invite, you know, 20 secondary schools to have their kids come and be, um, do their work placement with us. And then at all those kids throughout the year, we'd invite them back at the end of the year and the best kid would get an apprenticeship the following year. So we had to do things even, you know, this was four, five, six years ago just to attract people to the industry. Um, and I was reading something a little while ago that when COVID started, roughly 200,000 internationals left Australia to return home. Um, and out of that 200,000, half of them, so 100,000 were hospitality workers. So bang, that's a big, a big chunk gone. Um, and another thing as well, I think um, due to the instability of, of our industry sometimes where there's a lot of a big casual pool of staff now, you may have 20% permanent staff and, you know, 7 or 80% casuals, there's really no, not a great deal of job security um, for some of the um, chefs and waiters. So some of them uh, have moved to other, you know, fields, now working in factories or warehouse or whatever it may be, just for a bit more job security. So that's all that sort of side of it. And um, here at the restaurant, I've been lucky in some ways so even during covid we did as much as we can to um keep our, our team engaged um even if it was for you know a couple of four-hour shifts a week um we treat them like a big family um and what i have to do now is um definitely hire um lower skilled staff but with an amazing attitude um and i train the hell out of them um and it gives them a bit of a future and a bit of a career and uh, and they progress so it's I think gone are the days of just hiring, hiring ready-made, trained, qualified staff. 
Um, now we're just looking for great attitude, for a great, you know, great mindset, who's going to fit in with our team. Um, and we've been pretty successful with that. Um, while it's a bit harder on myself and the other manager, um, look, we, we can just see that it's a bit more sustainable. So and they, they tend to hang around uh, and they feel like they're a part of the journey. So, yeah. But I've been quite lucky in some ways just because of the amount of people I know around town. I often get people who want to work for me. Now, so in some ways I feel I'm lucky like that, but I know um, I get calls every day and, and messages and emails saying, look, Mark, I need chefs here, I need chefs there, you know, and there's just no, no one around. I mean, what is it that you do in and with and for your team that means that you've got this reputation when you, when you say you treat them like family? I mean, you know, what kinds of things do you do? Oh, well, look, I, I can, there's a couple of funny stories. Well, I remember there was, this is probably about 80 so years ago now. I had one of my waiters at the RACV club, um, great boy. He's a bit of a cheeky one, a Sri Lankan young fella. And his parents were sending him money from overseas um, to organise his visa and all this sort of stuff. And he used to call me dad. He used to call me his white dad. So anyway, he came to my office one day and said, dad, um, I've got a problem. You know that money my parents have been sending me? I've blown it all. And in three weeks, I'm going to have to go back to the country and da-da-da-da. So I lent this guy 10 grand, um, but I made him come and see my office twice a week with a little uh, receipt book and you have to put the money in the bank and all this sort of stuff. So I've lent money to them. Um, I've helped them sponsor their family to come over, some guys. Um, I just didn't get invested in trying to help them in their life. And I, I want them to, to learn and work. I, want, I expect them to work hard and be dedicated. Um, but I think we all sort of just try and go above and beyond and and – but I think it all comes back down to hiring the, the correct people, the correct attitude in the first place. So, like I said, I'm definitely not hiring skill. Um, we're hiring attitude. And then we just make sure that they learn. And my main rule here at, at Lunas and even at, at other places I've run is I don't care where you are right now, and that's for myself, any of the, the managers right down the kitchen end, is just keep getting better and then I'm happy. So wherever you are, you should be looking to you know improve. So what kinds of things do you have to do when, you, when you're hiring people with lower skills? Like do you have to look at a different approach to menus, to kitchen systems? I mean, a lot of people, you know, say, uh, I mean, a lot of people, I guess, need people to plug holes in their businesses. Like how do you structure a business to give yourself that time and those resources to train people? Look, and, and that's a, that's a great, great question, a great point, Danny. So essentially how I structure my menus here, um, they're based around um, 80% production and preparation and 20% execution. So there's a lot of work on, on preparation, on recipes, on systems, on standards, um, the way we do everything from the first poaching in the morning to the last sort of cheese plate at night, everything is, is systematic. Um, there's recipes for everything and I've developed and trialled them. And then there's not only having a recipe there and saying, chef, there's a recipe, because I can give the same recipe for zucchini fruit to 10 people and come up with 10 different versions of it. So um, I have to train them in the recipe as well. So, And then once I find, um, what I'll find is that once I've trained them in the recipe, trained them in the system, trained them in the plate up, um, they, they're happy because there's that takes a lot of the stress away from them. Um, and then, um, yeah, the, things seem to flow. And essentially what we're trying to achieve is that, you know, McDonald's or KFC style of consistency across across our restaurants so that uh, basically I don't have to be here all the time um, every day. So, uh, and that's what we try and achieve. And it, it, for us, it's the basic things are really important, like how you, you – you make the beautiful crispy toast in the morning but still soft inside and crunchy chips all the time is like a no-brainer for us and that's just a, 
um, you know, it's just a non-negotiable. So we have definitely systems, processes and standards as well. Um, and what is good is here is we don't consider ourselves to having a, a front of house and a back of house team. We have one team. So um, the waiters will know, um, the waiters won't take something out of the kitchen if it's not to standard. Um, they won't, you know, be aggressive or rude about it. But they, they just won't take it out. They know what the, what a standard should be. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's that team effort. And even on the other side of the coin as well, the chefs will um, pull the waiters up if something's not right. Um, the chefs will even, if there's no uh, orders in the kitchen, the chefs will run the food out to the table to help the front of house when they can. So um, there's just a lot of little things. And I suppose it's just um, no kitchen's ever perfect and no system's ever perfect. But um we're just always chipping away and just trying to get better all the time and just trying to use the experience and knowledge that I've got to, you know, share it with everyone. And um, in the, the day, um, we just want the customers to be welcome, to get a great consistent product and to walk out a bit happier than they came in. And, and we, we're sort of doing pretty well with that. So we're lucky. So, Mark, to, just back to the menu creation, I'd love to dig a, bit, uh, dig a bit more into that. So are there some – give me an example of a dish that would just be – a bit of a red flag um, and another, and give me an example of how you might change that dish to turn it into something that you can manage and, and you can, you can guarantee that consistency that you're looking for. Yeah. Okay. Look, there's a, there's a really cool example. Probably one of our most simplest things in the menu is essentially sounds simple, um, but it's complex is we have um, as well as the restaurant, which caters, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, afternoon tea, we have a wood fired pizza section. Um, and getting consistency in something like that is, you know, really hard because that's really a, it's an artisan style thing. So it's wood fired. It's not a rotational one. You're working with an oven, uh, sorry, a dough that has, you know, yeast in it and that's uh, resting and all this sort of stuff. So I actually brought in a guy with way, way more experience than me. He's run pizza shops for 30 years and he's been with us now for um, every service for the last three or four weeks just to train the guys on the dough and, and all that sort of stuff. So every single person will go through this training. Um, so I invested that money in, into uh, bringing Jason on board, um, but his knowledge with pizzas is, is just amazing. So And then I, I learn myself. So that's probably the one which we've um, we've come a long way with, I would say, and I'm really happy with that now. Um, with our other sort of the a la carte style menu, um, we've basically put a lot of dishes on there which on as i mentioned before the 80 20 rule with 80 percent preparation and 20 percent execution so we have a beautiful duck leg comfy which is you know such a beautiful thing um and it's something which most people wouldn't cook at home so they will order it when they go to the restaurant um and i've had some terrible duck leg comfy out there but the way we do it here we've got a great system we've got a great process for it and it's very consistent all the time and, and it goes back to that 80 20 rule so we have to salt it for four hours and we cook it for um, two hours, 110 degrees and all that sort of stuff. Um, but on service, it just it's so simple. It, it is definitely idiot-proof to see. And we have people coming back for the duck leg coffee. And it's a great thing because it's one of those dishes where you essentially wouldn't make it at home because it's quite a bit of a process and you need to get the duck fat and all this sort of stuff. So, um, But once again, on service for the guys, it's so simple and it comes up perfect every time. Same thing with our pork belly. Um, and people love these you know, secondary slow-cooked slow things these days. So we developed a menu like that. Um, our pasta, we make some fresh pasta here. We've got a big emphasis on making everything house even our cookies for the coffee which is fun you know so um for me as a chef um going out i, I can sort of look at any cafe in the restaurant and go that's out of a box that's bought in um so for me personally um i, I, if I want to make everything in house and, and basically it gives the guys a 
you know, opportunity to learn as much as they can while they're here as well. And, and I think that's why they hang around because they're, they're learning and they're having fun. Mm, yeah, it's really smart. And, yeah, I love that idea of those dishes that you can do consistently. It doesn't take too much, you know, in the in the heat of service, but it is something that someone is unlikely to cook at home, like like that duck confit or like the pork belly um, and, of course, like a wood-fired pizza. Um yeah, really interesting. So, Mark, let's talk about training and about the work that you do with students. Um, what do you think are some of the issues with the the TAFEs and the other training institutions? Wow, that's 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 a um, good question. I think what's happened with some of the TAFEs and some of the RTOs is they've relied heavily um, over the last few years on internationals coming in, and that essentially has bankrolled them, um, and they've almost. I won't say they've forgotten about, but it ha- what hasn't been a prior- priority is training apprentice chefs or, or apprentice chef programs. Um, and now you can see that, once again, we've got a skill shortage because there's not enough apprentices around. So in some ways, the TAFEs are, TAFEs are to blame as well. Um, so I think that now what TAFEs and, and um, trade schools have learned is, at the end of the day, the apprentice chefs are fundamentally important to our industry. We won't have one if we as employers don't hire chefs and if TAFEs don't train them properly and if uh, chefs don't train them properly. So, um, but I, I think that um, from my industry, my point of view, I've worked with pretty well every TAFE in Melbourne from Box Hill to Weemagus. They're all trying hard. The teachers are doing a great job. The teachers are trying to get out there and, you know, remain industry relevant and do a lot of um, things which back in my day teachers didn't didn't do so um when i was a younger chef the teachers was almost like a retirement village to go to be a TAFE teacher um but now like they have to be relevant because the kids are going there and they're saying wow you know what's a thermomix how do you use a paco jet how do you use makes um gels how do you do this how do you do that and if the teachers don't know it they uh, don't know what's happening out in the industry then um they become irrelevant so um i think a lot of teachers now a lot of tapes are encouraging you know the teachers to get back out and do some shifts in the kitchen which is good Mm. So do you think, I mean, you mentioned at the RACV Club how you brought in those high school kids. I mean, do you think that there needs to be more of, of that sort of pathway creation, like people seeing it from, you know, as teenagers, as a viable career? Do you think there's there's work to do in that area? Without a doubt. So that, that I can only use that program as an example for us because it was fantastic because what happened was we got to see this kid for a week and we'd make a little score sheet of them and say their attitude, their attendance, their potential to have a career in this industry um, and then what we would do is after we you know awarded the one or two stars of the, of the program before we even give them apprenticeship we would um, give them a job as a casual first so we'd make them earn their apprenticeship by the time six months comes along they knew exactly what life was like in the kitchen they knew about the hours the you know the ups, ups and downs and all that sort of stuff so um, by the time they'd actually started their apprenticeship they already had six or eight months experience in a kitchen and and I, I think that was that was a, a good long-term um, plan because it gets them job ready and, and also it's, it saves us from um, turning over um, apprentice well. Because as we know, like now some of the TV programs now can create a bit of an unreal um, you know, portrait of, of what being a chef is like. So we definitely made sure that they had a real understanding of it. Um, but I definitely think um, that they're working through with the um, RTOs who have to send their students on placements, working with secondary schools, working with kids, learning, teach them how to cook. I think it's just great. And, and this job's not for everyone, but um, people have the passion for it. Um, it's, it can be an amazing career as well. Mm. So uh, where do you think the industry is placed? I mean, people talk about the skills shortage, about staff shortage, um, customers not wanting to pay the real price of, of the cost to put food on the plate. I mean, do you, 
and yet you still sound very energized and optimistic. Like what's your sort of overview of the industry and, and where things are at, especially in this pandemic context? Yeah. Look, I am eternally optimistic, Danny, and just always the way I am. So in some ways I think this, um, you know, last 12 to 18 months has really given everyone the opportunity just to reflect, to, to really work if they really want to be in this industry. Um, and it's closed a lot of restaurants who potentially weren't doing the right thing. They were just paying cash and all this sort of stuff. So um, they couldn't get any of the government incentives. So I think it's given us a chance just to refresh and reset. It's given some um, opportunities for venues to, you know, reduce their menus. To um, And I think it's a lot of customers have got a little bit more of a realistic approach of, you know, what, like and how tough it is in hospitality um and it's not only restaurants and, and chefs and front of house it's all of the flow on parts of the hospitality sector as well things like our delivery uh, drivers our suppliers the linen guys there's av companies there's so many people who are involved in the industry and not just the you know the chefs and, and the restaurateurs and all that sort of thing so there's so many people involved um so but i think um the people who've been able to trade through to where we are now um and, and I think they're going to do, do okay, Danny. And I think there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but it's been tough. And I said, if anyone's made money in the last 80 months, good, good on you. Again, good luck to them. Uh, but not many people have. Um, so if you didn't have some sort of reserve there or some sort of, you know, plan B, plan C, um, you, you, just, you wouldn't be around. So mm. so where do you see your future? You've, you said you're sort of stepping back from the big venues and you've got your... Uh, your place in St Kilda is is are you just bunkering down there for now? Well, I've got um I sort of started up when I first left the big hotel. I started my own consulting business, which was quite fun, and went out and helped some buddies essentially first with um you know set up restaurants, open restaurants, or fix them, and all that sort of stuff. And and one of the roles I do now is I have a 150 day contract with um, Fonterra, which is Anchor Food Professionals. And they're an amazing company um, and I run their Proud to be Chef mentoring program. I help them develop recipes and products, um, train their staff, um, travel around Australia, do a bit of work with them. So um, that's sort of my little thing. And the restaurant was a bit of a just project, to tell you the truth, Danny. Um, and, you know, it's like when you're a busy person and when you enjoy what you do, it's hard to say no sometimes and someone will come to you with something and you go, yeah, sure. And then you look at your calendar and go, oh, man. So, but that's the way it is. So um, I'm positive this restaurant will be a great success and, and then hopefully it's going to run itself and I can, you know, with my other partners, we might do something else. Um, I've never had a plan to tell you the truth my whole career. I've just sort of done what I felt was good and right. And, yeah, it's sort of all seems to fall into place. Love it. So, Mark, let's finish by, can you talk to me about a dish that you just absolutely love cooking, whether it's about the produce or a technique or just something that reminds you of of a special period or or something that you learned from someone? 100%. I've got this dish on my, um, so being, you know, with with Woodfire Pete's and we do a sort of bit of, we all make our pastas and gnocchis as well, but there's a dish on the menu here which... um, I first learnt probably, I don't know, 25 years ago by a chef called Ray Capaldi, who was my exec chef when I was at the Soft Tail days. Um, and it's a simple, we make a beautiful saffron pasta sheet and we put a spinach and ricotta filling on it and we roll it up and we poach it a hole in a log, like a rotolo, and we serve it with some beautiful roasted tomato and some burrata. Um, and it's just so simple, um, but it's exactly the same as we're doing, you know, 25 or, or whatever odd years ago. And it's got some great technique in it because it's a beautiful fresh pasta, beautiful ricotta, simp spinach. 
Uh, and whilst really simple, it does have you know, a particular way it has to be poached and, and then regenerated as well with some beautiful fresh mozzarella. So I think that's the ones that reminds me back of my you know, soft shell days. Um, but it also, every time I do it now, I did it for a training session for some um, guys at a TAFE the other week and it was just wowed them away, you know. So it's a good dish will be a good dish no matter what trends come and, you know, not, you know, whatever's new and fancy, but a beautifully well-cooked dish will just be gold and, and we sell, sell a lot of it here. And, yeah, so I think that's probably probably the one. I love it. Mark, it's been an absolute privilege to have a chat to you and get your broad perspective on the industry and where things are at. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and experience with us all here at Dirty Linen. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Danny. Great to have a chat to you. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. Sorry, my postman's just putting a package on the doorstep.